This is the Skate Podcast, talking Bruins hockey with WEI Bruins writers Scott McLaughlin, Bridget Prue, and Brian DeFelice. Lace them up for some bees talk. It's Odyssey's The Skate Pod on WEI. Woo! Welcome into episode 228 of the Skate Podcast. I'm Brian DeFelice, joined by Bridget Prue and Scott McLaughlin. Bridget and Scott, honestly, who would have thought that the Bruins lose Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci to retirement. And then the very next season, they're on pace to go 82 and 0 and undefeated. Right. Yeah, exactly. They're yeah. Incredible, incredible start, better start than last year. In fact. So um, yeah, you know, that that's it. Like what else do we have to talk about? They're, they're never going to lose. Hey, they had, and they had a lot of guys healthy to start the year. Whereas last year they're, pretty banged up uh McAvoy was out of the lineup Bergeron was out of the lineup Marshawn so this year they they come in healthy and um you know there was definitely a lot of rust to shake off and it was the first game but um yeah if we're making the joke that you know they're off to having a better season than last year sure let's (laughs) let's do it there were a lot of positives um but we'll get into it I don't know uh we want to start with our first shifts yeah, so I mean, uh, going forward this season and and you know in the presumable future, we're gonna have a new segment on the on the on the podcast called the Opening Shift, where basically Bridget, myself, and Scott just give our our initial takes off the top, and then you know we'll expand upon it as the episode goes along. So, so Scott, why don't we start with you? What what is your what is your first initial takeaway? Well, I love the play of the fourth line. I thought. You know, they got the start, Lucic, Beecher, Lauko, uh, up against the the Bedard line to to open the season. And I really thought they kind of set the tone all night. Uh, Lucic was playing so well, he got bumped up to the Zaka-Pasternak line at one point. Um, sets up Pasternak's first goal on a two-on-one, which was, that was actually a shift with Morgan Geeky. It was a really odd combo coming out of like back-to-back penalty situations. So everything was thrown off, but um, yeah, that Lucic Beecher Loco line, like they're creating chances. They're dominating possession for the night. Uh, shot attempts when they were on the ice were nine to two Bruins shots on goal were five to one scoring chances, three to one high danger chances two nothing. That Beecher was really good in his first NHL game. Um, you know, played played some penalty kill, won the majority of his faceoffs. So, lot to like there. Got in his first fight after taking his first penalty. So, um, yeah, I think you know all preseason training camp. We've talked about all this bottom six battling and, you know, who's going to get jobs and whatever. And I know we're going to get into the third line as well, centered by Patra, but the fourth line, especially, uh, you know, seems like the Bruins have, have found something with this combination. Yeah. And, and what stood out to me was in kind of a more all encompassing way. I would uh, label this game was just a night of firsts, right? So it was Patra and Beecher's first game. Beecher's first fight, Potra's first point, and he looked really good on that assist. Um, it was 
the first time we got to see Bedard score an NHL goal, kind of weird. Scott and I were in the building. Obviously, this is a Chicago um, Blackhawks point. But, I mean, where were you when Connor Bedard scored his first goal? Me and Scott were there <laughs> on the ice. Uh, you know, and just throw in first game back for Lucci in nine seasons, I want to say. Um, and probably the first time we saw Tim Thomas come out of hiding in uh, several years. So, um yeah, we, we can talk about a little bit about the Centennial stuff as well. But my opening take is just that there were, it was a big night of first for some of the younger players and, and for Lucci. And, um, and yeah. For me, it's it's the story that continues with Matt Potra. I, quite simply, he's going to be here beyond the nine games. In fact, I think he's going to be in a, in a increased role for this Bruins team this season uh, as a top two center for them. I just think that the offensive upside is is very evident, but also just his smarts and IQ, and he just makes things happen in a way that, you know, you love him. I just don't think Charlie Coyle is, is going to be able to deliver to Boston, deliver to Boston um, the way they might need him to. So, so yeah, so, I mean, all great initial takeaways from the three of us. Bridget and Scott, going back to, to the game tonight, yeah, Bridget, you just mentioned it. Talk about the the atmosphere in the building. It's interesting because you're coming off of a a very very disappointing end to the greatest regular season of all time last year. Obviously, not getting past the first round in the playoffs, and in Bruins fashion, it ends in heartbreak. Up three one in the series, up in Game Six, up in Game Seven. You lose on home ice in overtime in Boston. It's pretty deflating, and then it's a pretty pessimistic off season until some some you know storylines throughout training camp with Patra and Beecher and Lori and you start to see you know what this Bruins team actually is still going to be very competitive and and here we go again only one team can win every year so just flushed last year out the window and a new season new beginnings and it's a centennial season so what was the atmosphere in the building did did you feel like the stink from last year was washed away with the excitement from this centennial season I think that, well, it was definitely still kind of almost like an elephant in the room. And it was addressed after the game by Montgomery, who uh, said seeing Bergeron made him feel like he just wished he'd got him a cup in his last season. He said Bergeron looked very happy and content to be there, not on the ice, but he just wishes they could have done it for him and Krejci in their final season. So it was kind of still in, you know, in people's thoughts, but in terms of like the pregame, celebrations that were going on we get a chance to talk to a a few of the the Bruins legends from the Centennial um 100 team or Centennial what what did they call it the legendary 100 um historic 100 historic 100 I got there eventually um with the help of Scott (laughs) um so there was a lot of people outside out front watching the gold carpet um and the guys came, talked to us for a little bit. We got to talk to Tim Thomas. We got to talk to Bergeron, Krejci, um, Busick, uh, Ray Borg. There was a whole list of people that we, we had a chance to talk to. Uh, Sean Thornton. And then, Chara, Terry O'Reilly, uh, Mike Mike Milbury. Yeah, it, it was a lot of people. Andy Moog. That was that was a surprise. I didn't. Yes, think that, that was. Yeah, I don't think he was supposed to come in. He just walked into the, <laughs> yeah. the scrum. He was just Why like, not? <laughs> um, but so that was before. And then when we got into the building, the the pregame ceremony 
was pretty long. The guys were sitting around for a while, but all the Bruins from this year's team were on the bench watching um, everybody get announced and a, a bigger focus on the Stanley Cup winning teams, um, including, uh, you know, the, the 2011 one where, uh, where that was getting the most ovations. Uh, Bergeron got a huge ovation, Chara as well. So the more recent guys, uh, the building got really loud for. Yeah, with the most obvious exception of Orr getting the loudest ovation, which is exactly what you expect. But yeah, I thought it in the building, it felt like the crowd was into all of it. Like like Bridget said, it was a pretty long ceremony. And I know all of it was on TV. I don't know if, you know, people made a point to watch all of it or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, it had to have been a good, it started like a little after seven and basically went like right up till 7.30. So it had to have been a good 20 minutes at least. So that, you know, that's, it's a long time to keep a, a crowd engaged that's there ultimately to watch a game. Uh, certainly a long time for players to sit on the bench. They, you know, had already gone through their regular warmups. And then after all of that, they get to, you know, skate around, do a little mini warmup afterwards, but it was, it was really well done. And can I yeah, say I'll, props to, can I say props to Jake Zimmer, who is the PA announcer who also does the intro to our podcast. Um, but he had to speak for like those 30 minutes and he did so well. He didn't screw up one time. So I hope he's listening. Cause I know sometimes he listens, but um, he killed it. Uh, that was a lot to say. And this is, I believe it's only his second year doing it. So uh, that was a big task for him on the centennial, you know, broad not broadcast but the centennial announcement ceremony before the game yeah he did do do a really good job and yeah and like i thought all the old timers who were there the representatives from the 70 and 72 cup teams got big ovations obviously the 2011 guys um and then all the retired numbers so the like cup representatives were all on the ice and then the guys who've had their numbers retired who are still with us, you know, obviously there's, there were relatives of like Eddie Shore, Lionel Hitchman, Dick Clapper, which was cool. And then your Borks, O'Reilly's, Oars, you know, they were all like in the crowded corners, in the corners of the arena. Um, so it, it was cool. And, and everyone, all the moments you thought would get a big ovation did. And then they introduced this year's team and obviously Lucic gets a huge ovation um, when he's introduced for the first time. Marshand is captain, gets a huge ovation. So it was really well done. And, uh, you know, I thought sometimes after a ceremony like that, you can get a game that gets off to a bit of a slow start because everyone's trying to find their legs after sitting around. And I thought we got an incredibly entertaining first period. Like, you know, both teams probably would have liked to tighten things up a little defensively, but I thought both teams came out flying. And, you know, I mentioned the fourth line, so setting the tone of the first shift, but that like it just about every shift was, there was pace, there was intensity. Um, my, my opening take, if it wasn't about the fourth line was going to be that, uh, I had a much higher opinion of the Bruins coming out of this game than I think Jim Montgomery did because that he, he described their, their game as very average and was pretty critical. And, and he did give the caveat of like, 
you know, it's the first game, so something that's to be expected. I sort of watched that game and came out of it thinking that looked pretty darn good for a first game. Like I thought the Bruins settled into it. They played well with the lead. They closed it out against, yeah, admittedly a team playing the second night of a back-to-back. So that helps, but um, you know, I, I thought there was a little higher level of play than, than maybe Jim Montgomery was giving his team credit for. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's fair, Scott. I think anytime you play the first game that, that matters and, you know, four or five months, you can get the two points. You you take them, put them in the bank. But, I mean, you mentioned it. They The Blackhawks are coming off of a back-to-back. Additionally, I don't – I mean, they're not a very good hockey team. Connor Redard, and we're going to get into him and just how good he can be in this league for sure, is good enough to give teams fits by himself regardless if he's playing with 20 cones. But um, I think that the Bruins – you know, I think they looked a little sloppy, but again, I'm not damning them. Like this is expected. It's, it's the first game and there's been a lot of turnover. I mean, uh, especially up front. So I I feel like they, yeah, I thought they played fine. All things considered. It was sloppy at times, but again, expected. So yeah, maybe Montgomery's taking a bit of a different approach this year. Maybe he's going to be a little bit more, not bad cop, but just a little bit less jubile maybe about after after everything and and uh, maybe that's a coaching strategy change for him um going into this year but yeah i think i think there's there's a lot to be figured out in this team uh there was a lot of line juggling and it's difficult to see who's gonna mesh with who um long term but as we've learned a regular season in the NHL is constant line juggling because of injuries and guys in slumps. So I don't know. I don't know if you're ever going to get to a fully set, like one through four lines, like all the time uh, for a set amount of games, like in theory, maybe, but there's a lot to figure out, but yeah, I thought he was a little harsh, Scott, but um, yeah, I can see both sides of it. Yeah. So it was interesting after the game, obviously Montgomery was asked about the, changing the line, switching things up, putting Potra with Marshawn, putting Lucci with Pasternak, putting, honestly, there was different shifts where it was all over the place. Coyle was back with Frederick. Um, you know, you're seeing combinations where Beecher and Lauko were, who started out on the fourth line, were playing with, you know, some of the better players on the team. And Montgomery, when he was asked about it, he said, actually, this season, he doesn't want to switch up his lines as much as last year because he felt like last year's team was really comfortable playing with each other, but they're still trying to build chemistry with this year's team. So um, though it's counterintuitive to what he did in the first game of the season, um, I guess he wanted to get looks today and maybe we'll see more of a consistent lineup uh, as the season goes on over the next month or so uh, as chemistry builds. But in my opinion, The first period, I like the lines from the first period best. Um, I thought that keeping that fourth line together worked really well. I thought there were shifts where Geeky and Patra worked well together. Um, I thought Van Riemsdyk looked good in his spot. And then when you started juggling it around, um, in the second period in particular, things just seemed a little bit out of sync. So um, I'm not sure what you guys' opinion is on the way that the, the roster was set up to start the game versus where things went. I understand why he wanted to get shifts of Marshawn with Patra because clearly that's 
uh, an idea that they have in, in is to Brian's uh, first point, which is that I think they're seriously considering already keeping them on that second line. Well, it certainly feels like something they could take a look at in, during this nine game sample. Like it, you know, now I, th- I think Patra played well enough in this game, no matter what line he was on uh, that, you know, like if you're talking about this nine game tryout, you know, how many of those nine games does he have to be good in order to stick? Well, I don't know what that number is, but I know that he's one for one so far. So, um, you know, obviously he has the nice assist on, on Frederick's goal, the first goal of the season where he pulls up in the offensive zone, makes a nice pass across to Carlo. He was involved all night. I thought he did the work defensively he had to do as well. So, at, you know, really nothing to take away there. But Bridget, I agree with you. Like, I, I think the lines they started with, I really didn't have any problem with any of them. Like, I, I didn't think he needed to be changing them. So I, I sort of thought that, oh, he's changing them in part because well, some of it was forced by all the penalties. So there is that. And then I thought maybe like this is stuff he wants to take a look at. Maybe, I don't know, he wants to see what a Patra Marshan line does in the offensive zone or in a certain matchup or whatever. So it was a little odd to hear him say that like he wants to settle on some lines, you know, earlier this year. And I was like, well, I don't know. I kind of feel like you had four pretty good ones going. I mean, just like to put in statistical context, the four lines that they started with all finished the game over 70% in expected goals, which is really good. Like the, by the end of the game, the and I think especially in the second half of the game, the Bruins were pretty dominant five on five. And I think all those lines were. Um the only line early in the game that wasn't was Marshan coiled to brusque. And that's because they were getting matched up against the Bedard line, which is obviously a tough match. You know, on opening night, Connor Bedard outplayed Sidney Crosby head to head. Like he he's just really good. And then he kind of moved away from, from like a strict matchup with the forward lines, still put out Lindholm Carlo against Bedard a lot. Um, and once, once that Martian coiled DeBrusque line wasn't going against Bedard every shift, I thought they had a lot of offensive zone possession and, you know, quite a few chances. Ironically enough, it was the line of that we all saw coming of Morgan geeky, David Pashnak and Milan Lucic that gave them the the eventual uh, game-winning goal in the neutral zone there. But um, definitely didn't see Lucic being in the top six uh, in the second period of the season. So, yeah. I was dying laughing at one point during the game because he was on Twitter and uh, someone photoshopped uh, Jim Montgomery's head onto the Kevin James meme of him looking kind of like smug. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, about, like, I'm going to put Lucci on the first line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, I mean, it definitely, in that moment in time, it worked. Uh, yeah, I, I I didn't have a chance to watch the first period in uh, in real time. I had, to, I had to go back and watch it when I got home from work. But I – so so when I tuned into the game, it was 
JVR on the fourth line. And so I said to myself, oh, how, how poorly must he have played to get demoted to the fourth line after just one period? So, you know, it, I didn't have that real time uh, ability to, to watch that shake out. But yeah, it's, it's, it's just one of those things. It's like you, you have a month long training camp, maybe just like stick with like the lines you, you, you kind of wanted to get a look at for more than what, two or three shifts each, four shifts each in one period. But again, you know, it helped eventually get them a game-winning goal. So uh, I guess it worked tonight, but that's clearly not a line combination we expect going forward, Lucic, Geeky, and Pasternak. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and Van, you know, Van Riemsdyk, I'm, like, I'm glad Montgomery clarified after the game. He said he liked Van Riemsdyk's game and uh, told him, you know, made sure he knew, like, this wasn't punishment. He was just kind of moving things around. And that was sort of how I felt in game. I was like, you know, you see, like he makes that move. And I was like, I don't like, I don't think Van Riemsdyk's had a poor game. So this doesn't seem like punishment, but that odd shift of Lucic, Kiki and Pasternak scoring the goal had just happened. So I wonder if it was just like, more of, hey, you know, maybe Lucic and Pasana can do something, you know. Maybe what they just did to score a goal can carry over for a couple more shifts. And, you know, he stuck with that for a few shifts. And then third period, it was Van Riemsdyk back up with Zaka and Pasternak. It, the All the penalties really did, like, throw things off a lot because I tweeted this after, after the second period. Zaka was last on the team in five-on-five five ice time. Now, he led the team in power play and penalty kill ice time. So he was still getting minutes. They were just like like half of them were on special teams. So it's like, you know, and Pasternak doesn't play on the penalty kills. So naturally, like, that leads to Pasternak getting shifts with a bunch of different centers. And, you know, so. But, yeah, I thought. You know, I thought Van Reems like was solid though for the, for the most part. He nearly scored a highlight reel goal uh, where he took, um, like, tried to go like through his legs and then flip it past the Blackhawks goalie and uh, just couldn't quite get it off the ice. Yeah, that that caught me by surprise too. He was in the crease and he reaches back like between the legs, behind the back, trying to lift it. It almost worked. Um, that would have been a really nice first goal for him to have in Boston. But um, like you mentioned, special teams threw it off. And I, I want to get you guys' opinion on the power play units. Um, penalty kill, I thought, looked really good. But power play, things were still off a bit. Um, I think we saw we saw the first unit that we kind of expected with JVR, net front, um, Pasta, Zaka, McAvoy and Marshawn on that and then the second unit was they have 2D on the second unit this year so Lindholm and Shattenkirk both um with DeBrusque, Patra and Geeky and I think it's interesting because Patra and Geeky I wasn't sure I we saw they played power play time in preseason but I wasn't sure they were necessarily going to be that second unit in the regular season and they had Geeky taking the face-offs for those mostly not Patra and the person that you kind of feel like got snubbed was Charlie Coyle. Like Charlie Coyle is supposed to be one of your, your top two centers and he's not getting time on the power play, at least in this game. 
Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott. I don't think he played on the power play at all. Um, if he did, it was only for a few seconds. Um, he played a lot on the penalty kill because um, he's really good at that. But I, I ha- I just noticed his absence in the fact that it it just felt like oh, you expect your one of your top two centers to get power play time. Yeah, literally a few seconds. Charlie Coyle had three seconds of power play time. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- these are the units they've been practicing with for the last few days leading up to the opener. So, um, you know, initially early in training camp, Coyle was the net front guy on the second unit. And I, I think they just decided, I, again, it's a credit to Patra, but he was the one not on that unit initially uh, when the Bruins first started practicing, like their clear go-to top units. And he's the one who just forced his way on. Like he just, you know, kept making good plays, not just five on five, but also on the power play. And they realized, Hey, we have a weapon here and a playmaker that probably has to be out there on one of our power plays. And so he is. And basically that moved that they, they like that two D look where like one is always going down the elbow and coming lower and Chat Shattenkirk's obviously pretty experienced on the power play throughout his career. So they keep them. DeBrusque was on the elbow. They move him to the net front, which is where he's played more in the power play anyways. And when I was talking to him at media day, he said that is probably the spot he's most comfortable. So yeah, Coyle just gets bumped off because he's the odd man out. And, you know, I, I think... I think Coyle can handle that net front role, but it's not like he's so great at it that he has to be there. Like DeBrusque is probably better at that role. So um, yeah, it's unfortunate for Coyle because I'm sure he thought that was going to be part of, you know, this expanded role this year, but, and it still might be right. Teams switch up power plays all the time, especially if they struggle. Uh, But for now, yeah, he does, does get shuffled out. And my thought was maybe like instead of geeky, I'm not that geeky did bad on that unit, but just that that might be something they'd try. I think they they really like geeky in that bumper spot though, and and he played there in Seattle too. So yeah, I guess that's really the, the difference there. You'd you'd either slot him in for geeky or Patra, but they're they're giving Patra the reins a lot. I mean, as they should. Patra's earned it, I think, and and. Like, as I've said, his creativity and, and offensive mind is is better than I think just about, honestly, maybe 90% of what they have right now on the, on the team. So, uh, you know, for me, it, when it comes to Coil, it's interesting because it's, it, again, it kind of ties into a bit of my opening take, which we're, we're going to circle back to those uh, not too far from now. But if you if the Bruins want Charlie Coil to be a top two center for them, as Bridget mentioned, being on the power play, I feel, is integral for somebody to be productive at five on five because you're getting offensive zone touches and you're getting some some looks and confidence and looks at the net that clearly are a lot harder to come by five on five. So I think you've like you've heard you've heard Bruins players talk about it in the past, Marshan, Pasternak, like like when you're playing together on the power play and you're getting it does translate to your five on five game. 
uh, between the ears as it pertains to offensive confidence and creativity. And, and I, it's so for me, Charlie Coyle being on that line with, with, with DeBrusque and Marchand, it's not just that, that Coyle has to produce himself. It's that he needs to be able to allow Brad Marchand offensively to still be Brad Marchand because if, if Marchand's offensive production plummets too much and Coyle's not really doing much offensively, that's a problem. And, and this, is, this is why, just having watched Coyle for years, I, I love Coyle. I think he's a great player. But I, don't, I think offensively, I don't think he's capable consistently enough to do what they want him to do in that second line or first line, whatever you want to call it. That said, if they want any chance of him doing so, I do think it's important for him to get power play minutes and can he handle a bumper role better than geeky? I haven't watched geeky much in Seattle on the bumper, but I'll take your word for it, Scott, that that's what they did with them. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, t- it's, a, it's a tough ask for Charlie Coyle to be like, all right, we want to be a second line center or first line center, but I'm not getting power play time. So again, it just seems like the Bruins aren't sold on what they want him to be for them. And I think there's a 19 year old kid who's going to make a case for himself eventually anyway. But right now it's, if I were coil, I'd be frustrated. You know, I, I've been here for three, three and a half, four years. And, you know, I'm, I'm losing a spot on the power play to a guy who, you know, and Morgan geeky, who is not as established as coil is as an NHL player and certainly as a Boston Bruins. So it's a difficult situation. Um, I certainly thought that that second unit, however, was much more effective than the first unit tonight. Um, I think that, you can tell Brad Marchand is not used to having a lefty in the bumper in Pavel Zaka. Uh, he, he, you know, so oftentimes when, when Marchand has nothing to do, he just always trusted Bergeron and his right-handed shot was there in the slot to kind of just get something towards the net. And he tried to do it a couple of times tonight and just, you know, it's the wrong handedness and they got to get used to that. Um, but the second unit was good. One other snub I would add is it wasn't too long ago where the Bruins started the regular season and Matt Grizzlick was quarterback in the top unit, Charlie McAvoy eventually took it over. But Matt Grizzlick has also found himself not on a power play unit. Maybe that happened in the last year anyway with Orloff in the mix. But uh, Shattenkirk and Lindholm are the two D on that second unit, as you guys mentioned. And, you know, I actually like Shattenkirk's shot first mentality. And Scott, you mentioned he's he's experienced. And I think that, that, that was pretty evident on the on the second power play unit. Not every shot of his got through, but that's the right mentality. Yeah, that I thought Chan Kirk was really active and really good tonight, both on the power play and five on five. Um, you know, it is kind of kind of funny. Like one of one of the things I think a lot of fans were concerned about or were tweeting like yuck in response to is was the third pairing of Forbert and Shattenkirk. Uh that pairing had a really good game. Like so, sorry, you can't can't really hate on it. Like they were they were really they were rock solid. And Shattenkirk on the power play too. Um, yeah, like you said, was it, he was like starting on that elbow, you know, sort of on, more on the side, but he ended up, you know, basically as the quarterback like quite a bit. It seemed like he had the puck and was in charge more than Lindholm. And yeah, so whether it was passing, whether it was getting shots towards the net for tips, redirect, you felt like there were a few times where they just missed where like he had a, you know, a good shot with sticks and traffic and either the tip went wide or, you know, or the tip missed and the shot went wide or whatever. 
but like you you could you could like feel something good happening um so yeah like that that's another really encouraging thing to see especially if you're talking about towards the towards the bottom of the roster uh grizzly is it is interesting you know I'll, I have to go back and check, but I feel like it was even longer than when they got Orlov that he was off the power play last year. Like if I remember, I think even earlier in the season, he, you know, cause they didn't go to that two defenseman look until at some point during the second half. So even early in the year, I was like, I'm sure he was on it while McAvoy was out, but once McAvoy was back, I think it was like McAvoy one unit, Lindholm the other. And everyone else was forward. So, you know, Grizzly did get some shorthanded time, but like this was one of the things last year was he almost became basically like a f- an exclusively five on five defenseman. And if you're looking at, you know, how this defense ultimately shakes out, like he's probably going to have to contribute somewhere else. So maybe that ends up being more in the PK, but, you know, especially when you have like a, a player like Mason Lori pushing um, you're either going to have to be truly elite at five on five, which Grizzly has been, you know, in the past, especially when he's been with McAvoy. So to his credit, like that, that's not out of the question for him, but it does feel like, you know, he's probably going to have to contribute more somewhere else. And I thought, I don't know if I'd say he had like a bad game, Wednesday night, but I thought as much as maybe anyone looked a little rough, like certainly wasn't his best game. I thought he had some, some pretty, pretty tough moments. Do you think that, do you think that uh, he could potentially be somebody that the Bruins at some point decide to make a, a personnel decision with? Like if, if you have, and and again, I'm not starting to beat the drum of trade Matt Grizzly. I'm but objectively speaking, you're talking about a uh, you know somebody who is not being used on either special teams unit, and he's a good five on five player, absolutely no doubt about it. But with a little bit of grooming, I think Mason Lori would be too. Uh, he also has size, God give God given size that Matt Grizzly doesn't have. You don't need size to be a good NHL player. But I think most people would probably say if, you, if, if, if all things are considered equal, it's better to have it than to not. So, you know, it, it, let's say it's a couple months now or whatever, and, Matt, and, and Mason Lorai is just maybe he's already on Boston. Maybe he's already getting in some games and, and whatnot. And if Matt Grizzlick's role does not – if it stays as it is, where he's just five, five, five on five and a good player, do you think maybe it, it's – do you think if you're Matt Grizzly, do you think you're hearing those footsteps of Mason Lorai down in Providence or is Derek Forbert feeling those footsteps or somebody else? I'm sure both of them are, or, you know, they, they should be like, they, they should feel like they're being pushed by Mason Lorai. I mean, he had, a, he had a great camp and he, you know, if you're Grizzly, especially like Mason Lorai played two preseason games next to Charlie McAvoy. I mean, if you're Grizzly, like, how do you not look at that and be like, Hey, that kid's in my spot, you know, like, so yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he is. Um, you know, my stance on this all along has been like, I'm, I'm not in any rush to trade a defenseman. It's a 
it's a position where you always get injuries every season. So I'm not trying to trade away my depth. I'm not putting my, not trying to put myself in a spot where like all of a sudden you're one or two injuries away from, you know, Ian Mitchell and Jacob Zaboral being your third pairing, which, you know, could be fine. Like I'm not trying to rip those guys, but that suddenly becomes a, you know, more of a question mark than if Lori or Grizzly or Forbert's your seventh defense minutes, someone, you know, you probably feel a little better about. So it, you know, Grizzly could be on the block at some point. We know he's in the final year of his contract. So obviously if you don't think he's part of your future, you don't think you're going to resign him, then maybe it's something you entertain. But I also just think depth on defense is a great thing to have. So I am in no rush at all to try to, uh, to try to trade, trade that away. No. And, and to me, I don't, I don't even like notice it as a snub that he's not on the power play because when you think about the two guys, they're the two like quarterbacks of the power play you think about with McAvoy and Lindholm. And obviously we mentioned Shattenkirk also on that second unit. Those guys are perfectly capable of, of doing those things. So it's not like you need him there. And also, um, those are just two really good players. So he wasn't probably going to get past either of those guys. Um, it's a luxury to have that many players that you can rely upon to play that quarterback on the blue line. So um, I didn't see it as a snub at all. It didn't even cross my mind uh, just because you you trust those other guys so much that I don't think he, and he has put it in the past, but he has a lot of competition for that spot. So I noticed more of the Charlie Coyle part of it. And I'm with Scott, no, no need to trade a defenseman. Um, obviously I don't think that's what you're saying anyway, Brian, but <laughs> no, yeah, no. Yeah. But, but it, it is a good point though. It's like, I think a lot of times it's easy to, to, to see what's on the horizon and then just try to like, you know, look at that as a, as a roster replacement when it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, yeah, like you can always have, you know, Grizzlick or Forbert as your seventh defenseman if Lori forces his way into this lineup. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's look, defense is a position of strength for the Boston Bruins, and Mason Lori only strengthens that. And and even more so if Matt Grizzlick is still around and Derek Forbert. So yeah, injuries happen. You need depth. We've seen it every year with this Boston team. Speaking of defense, before we kind of circle back to our original takeaways and, and wrap up this episode. How did you guys feel Linus Olmark played in goal? And after what may have been a slow preseason, but it's preseason, so it's nothing to really dissect. But how did you feel Olmark played in goal and the defense in front of him? I thought Olmark was was really good. Uh, you know, wasn't tested a ton. He only faced 21 shots, but uh, had some, you know, really high caliber saves. And the other Bruins, you know, as you said earlier, were – Sloppy early on had a couple really bad giveaways that led to, you know, one breakaway, I think off a Marshan turnover, a couple two on ones. So he, he was tested um, and, you know, stood tall. I thought he looked just like the Linus Allmark of last year. So uh, good, good start for him. Defense in front of him started again, started sloppy, there's definitely stuff to clean up. I thought as the game went on, really solid. And Montgomery highlighted that after the game too. He said he liked the way that they played with the lead. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't 
just sitting back, but when they, when they had to defend, when they had to, you know, bear down their own zone, they did. So uh, ended up in a good place, even if the start was a, you know, a little rough. Yeah. On all Mark, uh, Connor Bedard definitely could have had at least two goals in this game, if not for Linus Allmark making some really big stops on him, especially one that was point blank that I was like, oh, that's that's a goal. And and Allmark was able to keep it out. So uh, he did look like he did last season. No reason to worry about net, I don't think, this year. Um, and certainly not in this game. He was probably their best penalty killer on the ice as well. Um, in terms of the defense tonight, Carlos point shot ends up being the reason why, you know, it's online. Frederick tips it in first goal of the season. A good, a good thing to see Carlo taking that shot there. Um, I thought that one of the, one of the main things Montgomery has been talking about in terms of his defensive structure has been the switches because they they're playing zone. So they're, they're, you know, they've been working on switching and, and doing everything smoothly in that facet. I think they looked good. So, um yeah we in in our preview we said as much the the goaltending and the d are not really um those are the strong suits of the bruins so um those storylines in tonight's game and i'm guessing throughout the season will kind of be backseat to a lot of the takeaways we have for the offense because there's a lot less settled and still isn't at the moment uh, in terms of where people are going to play there and, and what their seasons are going to look like. So the, the fourth line, the fourth line, getting back to Scott's takeaway from the game. I haven't been this intrigued by the potential of a fourth line, uh, this excited about a fourth line since you, you started to see the energy and physicality that Sean Corrali and Noel Achari played with together. I kind of see a little of Corrali and Beecher and I kind of see a little bit of Achari and Loco and just like their, their, their bulldog mentality. I'm not saying this apples to apples. And then obviously, you know, those two Achari and Corrali play with a kind of a Rolodex of guys, um, you know, Tim Schaller, um, Chris Wagner, Joachim Nordstrom and others. Um, obviously Beecher, Loco, and Lucic are the 2023 rendition of the Bruins fourth line to start. Scott, expanding on your take, what does this potential fourth line bring that Nosek and Felino and you know, whatever that that you know carousel of players was for the last couple of fourth fourth lines for the Bruins? Well, I think with, with Beecher and Lauco, it's clearly more speed. Like that this is a line that can move. And I think all three are going to be hard on the four check. And what I really like is I feel like they, they all bring out like something important in each other. And what I mean by that is like Beecher and Lago, the speed guys, that's going to force Lucic to keep up and probably pay it, play at a pace that he hasn't played it in a few years. Like, he wasn't on especially fast lines in Calgary. You know, you probably, I remember there was a brief time where he was on a line with Connor McDavid in Edmonton. So you probably have to go back to then. And not that I'm, you know, comparing Beecher and Lauko to Connor McDavid, but in terms of like forcing Lucic to keep up, um, you know, those guys are going to do it. And that's, that's a good thing because 
if Lucic is skating, then that's what you need to see from him. Uh, Montgomery highlighted that after the game, said, you know, Lucic really came into camp in shape and, and has felt like that's showing through. Um, and then the combination of Lucic and Lauko, the way that they play physical by nature, like it's just ingrained in them, I think will drag physicality out of Beecher, which is something that he has been working to add to his game, but maybe doesn't come naturally to him. But if, if those guys are on your wings and they're doing it every shift, it, it's going to force you to like, you don't, you're not going to want to be the one guy out of three who doesn't throw a hit when it's there, who isn't using his body, like, you know, to box guys out or whatever. So, uh, I, I like that element. And then of course the, you know, the big key that ultimately determines just how good they can be is how much are they chipping in offensively? Because you can bring energy and you can be good defensively, but if you really want to be, you know, like a very good fourth line, you're going to have to score. So we, we saw Lucic involved in some chances. Uh, you know, we saw times last year where, where Loco uh, was involved offensively. It's always been the question with Beecher's game is, you know, is the offense ever going to come? Is he going to have enough offense? Well, he's going to get, you know, a really long look this year to to show that he does have enough offense and can contribute, but that will sort of be the, you know, the determining factor in whether this is just a solid fourth line, which I think is, I think that's the floor for them. Like, I think they're a solid line pretty much no matter what, but if they're going to be a really good fourth line on, you know, a playoff team, then it's going to be the offense. That will be the wild card. I think to compare it to like a no six centered fourth line, the, the no six centered fourth lines last season, I would describe as conservative because they were more about just doing the right thing. There was a lot less focus on the forecheck. Um, there was just a sense of a different pace, first of all. Like you mentioned, Lauko uh, and Beecher play with that quicker pace. And the the tone of that line was completely different. I think there was a lot less energy to it. So, um, first of all, I, I really liked what they had going tonight. I think that they made the right decision. Um, unfortunately for Greer, he was the odd man out, got waived and, and you know, lands with another NHL team. He, he gets taken off of waivers. But it, when you look back at the decisions that were made at the end of camp and who to put on that line, it seems like they they made the right choices there. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, the, the no, no sick as a center iceman on the Bruins fourth line, it just kind of put you to sleep. So whether it was Nosick and Felino and Hathaway or Nosick and Lazar and Felino or whatever the, whatever the combination was, it was Bridget. That was an excellent way to describe it. It was very conservative and it was very just like, let's just make sure the puck doesn't end up in our net. And maybe if we score a goal uh, once a season, very rarely, yeah. <laughs> then that's great. So, uh, Bridget, if you don't mind, I'm going to save your initial takeaway to come back to last because there's a question I want to ask the two of you on it that kind of is a good way to end the podcast. Uh, so, for mine, uh, for Patra, like, I just think 
again, you watch him tonight and he makes players around him better. And I can't say that about Charlie Coyle. And I don't even know if I can say that about Pavel Zaka. So uh, I just feel like you watch him and there's times where you're watching the TV or maybe even in person, guys, for you up, up above on the ninth floor. But I have to say to me, I think it's Martian. Like, oh, like, like oh, no, that's not Martian. Like, like hunting that puck in the corner. Like, that's, that's Patra. That's Patra getting possession. That's Patra winning that, that puck battle. That's Patra, you know, surveying the offensive zone and making things happen. And, and I just think that I, I think he's going to surpass this nine game sample size. And I do think the Bruins are going to eventually put him in a position where they're going to want him on the ice as often as possible. And, you know, he impressed me with, with his back checking and two-way play today. I know it was just one game in the regular season, but he he's going to help players around him produce in a way that I just don't think Coyle, Coyle will be able to long-term. Definitely worth going back and listening to our interview with Patra from last episode, by the way, if you haven't had a chance to do that yet, because we talked to him for about 10 minutes. And, and one thing he told us he worked on in juniors that was key for him was um, wanting to be a guy that wins the battles in the corner, even though he's not the biggest guy, not the tallest guy. Um, so his two big things were being strong enough, getting strong enough um, to win those battles that are along the wall. And like you said, he, he's been doing it well. And, and for a relatively small guy, um, he, he handles himself. So uh, I said last, episode and a few episodes before that it's been a few weeks that I thought he was going to stick around after the nine games and um, I think everybody who looked at me funny when I was first seeing it around the office is kind of seeing it for themselves so yeah Brian I I like that you make that Martian comparison because there was one sequence in particular tonight where that's exactly what I thought he was in in a battle down low in the offensive zone and the puck kind of squirted loose and in a direction where like the Blackhawks defense was clearly closer and seemed to have almost a free play to go behind his own net and come out the other side. And Potter like almost like angrily, like looked like he was playing angry, just like knifes in and sort of like dips his shoulder and tucks like almost under the defenseman and wins the puck back and like it didn't end up not leading to a scoring chance but it was like that like that was an impressive second effort like Jim Montgomery and Bruce Cassidy before him talk all the time about second efforts you know which is you know puck puck comes loose or there's a rebound or whatever and it looks like the other team's gonna start going it's like what can you do to stop them in the tracks and force a turnover and that sort of effort from Potter is like that's the kind of thing that's going to get him to stick around all season. Like, you know, we've talked plenty about the poise and vision playmaking and all that, which is obvious, but it's like, if he's bringing that kind of effort um, to win pucks back to, you know, to just, just hound the puck and just be all over defensemen. Like, yeah, like he's, he's going to stick. That's, that's exactly what you need. Uh, in in an NHL forward, yeah, I mean, what he basically what he does is he acts instead of reacting. You have a lot of players that are reactionary, and he's he takes initiative and he's just assertive and he like he he hunts pucks and he's smart and he keeps the game simple. He stops 
if the if the players are on the net, it's if it's in transition, he stops at the net, doesn't fly by the net. You know, there, there was a power play where the Bruins had where the first unit was out there for a while, did nothing. Second unit got out there, they were sloppy too because of the, the change and whatnot, and nothing happened. And at the very end of the power play, Potra just like threw it towards the net. And like it was such a simple play, but it's like if it's so simple, why isn't anybody else in the other units doing it? You know, and it's his, it's his first NHL game. So it's just impressive. The way he the way he's playing beyond his years and the, and the energy he's playing with is it's very notable. Um speaking of notable. Bridget, you mentioned a night of firsts, none more notable despite Johnny Beecher's first fight and Matt Potra's first NHL point. Nothing more notable than than um, Connor Bedard's first NHL goal, which, as I tweeted out, was against the Bruins. Sidney Crosby's first goal was also against the Bruins. So the Bruins just love uh, making phenoms uh, famous with their first goals. So Bridget, okay. we get to see it still. I'm not like I'm not upset about it. No. And and look, this this was your takeaway, so I don't want to I don't want to hijack it. I do want to throw this question your way, and then Scott, I want you to answer it as well. And then Bridget, you can finish it how you will. But um, I'm just curious on your opinions, just how good Connor Bedard can be because he is filthy. I mean, he controls the game anytime he's out there. It's it's honestly magical to watch. So I'll I'll, I'll phrase it this way. As long as Connor McDavid's in the league, is everybody else always just second best? Or can you see Connor Bedard rivaling Connor McDavid for league supremacy while they're clearly in the league together? I feel like it's so early to say. Um, Bedard has played two games. Um, but yeah, he almost makes that. I mean, in every player and coach, they all talk about game planning for him because he's the biggest threat on that team already. Um, so I, it's, it's hard to say, but I don't see why not. I think you will have a really good gauge of that uh, maybe a few months into the season or maybe by the end of the season, just where he stands in terms of uh, what he looks like compared to Connor McDavid. But obviously Connor McDavid has had that title for a long time. It's hard to just see it going away from him because he's, also somebody who just looks like he gets better every year. So uh, it's too soon to say for me, but he has a lot of potential. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the few players where you can look at them and say their ceiling is Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby. Like it's that kind of hall of fame, top 10 player ever type of ceiling. And it's like, that's just not an exaggeration. Because he's just that talented. Like his his hands, his skating, his shot, his release is is absurd. Like there's his some of his releases, and I'm not even just talking about tonight, but like watching uh, the opener and then watching like some tape of him leading up to the draft. It's like some of them remind you of of Pasternak, the way that he will deceive goalies and like take get shots off where you're like wait how did he just get that off that quickly but Pasternak didn't have that right away like that's something that he's worked to develop over many years and we've seen almost as something like he's had to add to his game because 
teams have taken away some of his or try to take away, you know, say like the one timer on the power play or some things he wants to do five on five. And it's like Connor Bedard's 18 and already has that kind of deception in his shot. And yeah, and it almost feels like even if he does, like if he doesn't reach that ceiling, which obviously is very possible, right? It's extremely early and there's a lot of work to do before he's actually on Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby's level. But it's it kind of feels like even if he's not that, it's like hit like his floor could be like Steven Stamkos or you know, like still like an unbelievable player. It's like I don't see any scenario where he's just like an above average center or you know makes three or four all-star teams. It's like someone would have to go horribly wrong for that to happen. It feels like he's just gonna be an all-star every year in MVP consideration every year. And the talent level is just so high that it's like, yeah, something would have to like really go wrong for him to not at least be that. He had this play in the game, not like this was just one of several good plays that he had where Carlo and Lindholm were, were kind of backing up and, and he was in front of them. And then next thing you know, he was behind them. And it was like, how the hell did he just split them and get behind him? Like, they, you don't, those are two good defensemen. It was like magic. He just all of a sudden just was like water and he squeezed his way in there somehow and came out the other side. And that was one of the times where um, Allmark had to make a good save. There was a scary moment where uh, if you were a Chicago fan or a Bedard fan where Lindholm and him collided and he ended up in the end boards. And I was sitting there telling Scott, like he didn't get up for a little bit. Maybe he was just taking his time, but uh, I was like, oh my God, no, not his second game. Like it was, it feels like every time he has the puck, you're excited. But every time he takes a hit, if you're a Chicago fan, you're like, that's the worst possible thing that could happen. So, and for the NHL, it would be really bad too, because the, even though Chicago hasn't been good recently and they're not great on paper again this year, he's what's driving people to those games. So they're making more money. And the Scott, you, you said this or tweeted this that was the highest rated regular season NHL game between Pittsburgh and Chicago. And that has to do with Connor Bedard, like the viewers on TV and just fans at the games, they're all going for him. So it would be really bad for the NHL if anything happened to him. Yeah. ESPN said that was their most viewed regular season game on record. Yeah, it's, I mean, and look, obviously I pose this question forward looking, like not 23, 24, but like, you know, say it's like 2026, 20, 2027, 20, like, is there, is there a neck and neck race between McDavid and, and, and Bedard for like league supremacy? Obviously you got to see it first, but I mean, you know, 16 shots on goal in his first two NHL games. I mean, the kid, he, he scored a goal tonight, obviously, but he easily could have had, you know, three or four. It's like I can – and the Bruins are one of the best defensive teams in the league. And I know it was an opening night, but, like, I mean, you can just see this kid lighting it up night in and night out. I mean, yeah, it's it's going to be pretty special. I mean, Scott, for you to say, you know, top ten all-time ceiling, it's like that goes to show what, like, this is – believe the hype if you, if you, if you, if you haven't yet. Uh, and and understandably so. Like sometimes people have to see it to believe it. And when you're playing all these games in junior Canada, like people can't watch them, so you just have to take people's words for it and then scouts' words for it. But this kid is 
this kid is beyond the real deal. And um, anyway, so Bridget, not to hijack, were there any other things from your night of first you wanted to discuss before we sign off? No, because I guess the other stuff we've kind of gone over as well. I mean, the fight wasn't the best fight from Beecher. Um, I talked to Lucci after the game about it. I said, well, how was this for him? He said he did good, but I could, he could definitely learn a few things from Lucci. So he said he would talk to him. Um, we already covered Patra's assist. Uh, and the Bedard thing was, uh, it was just cool to be there. I was getting texts from my friends that are big Chicago fans. Like, I'm so jealous of you right now that you got to see his first goal. So, um, even though it was kind of a reflective night with the centennial season and everybody there, uh, it was also looking forward and, and seeing these new faces and what could be the future of the Bruins and what could be the future, what will be the future of the Blackhawks. So there was some old and new and it was, it was kind of a whirlwind, but it was really fun to be there. One last thing, since you mentioned the, the scary moment with Bedard, we should mention a scary moment with former Bruin Taylor Hall, who got knocked out of the game, um, returned for one shift, then got ruled out. And uh, Chicago's coach said after the game that it looks like it's a week-to-week injury. Um, so obviously that sucks. And he was playing on the line with Bedard so that, you know, that could affect how Bedard's next few weeks go because Taylor, you know, all due respect to Ryan Donato, Taylor Hall was the best player he was playing with. Um, but yeah, that was, it was a tough play because the puck was kind of like in a scrum and Carlo came in to deliver a hit and we know Carlo's not a dirty player. So I'm, I'm sure he thought Taylor Hall had the puck, but Hall didn't. And he was actually like looking back at the scrum to see where it was and just wound up, unfortunately just getting blindsided. And it was kind of, there, there was head contact. They don't, I don't think Carlo's going to hear from the league on it, but you know, who knows? Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you think concussion first, but it could have been neck shoulder. I mean, who knows? Mm. All right, guys. Well, the, the Bruins are one and zero. they beat the Blackhawks three to one on opening night at TD garden. Bridget and Scott, the Bruins next play Thursday against the predators again at the garden. Saturday. Is it Saturday? Yeah. Um, Saturday. Yeah, they, yeah, they have some time off. Okay. Scratch and then that. they have like four days off after that because then they they play Saturday and then they don't play again until they get on the West Coast on Thursday. Gotta gotta love like playing the, the Predators and the Sharks and the Kings right away. It's like gotta love those rivalry games to start the season. Right. Well, I think they I think their first eight games are all against the Western Conference. That they play the Blackhawks twice and the Ducks twice before they even play an Eastern Conference team. But true, it seems like they always have these bizarre early season schedules. Well, we'll be covering it the entire time. So thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you very soon.